The Bible readings can be found on page 7 of your zines. So Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And the next reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Brianna. So Daniel is an ancient book uh, telling uh, a story or narratives of, of uh, living in a strange place. It's a rollicking read in many ways. Um, uh, first half was really great and memorable stories. Second half is crazy dreams that sort of map out the, 
sixth, fifth, fourth, and se- uh, third and second century BC. It's astounding stuff. Uh, it's full of kings rising and falling and being deposed. It's got a whole stack of political intrigue. I mean, there's people thrown into fiery furnaces and into lions and rescued. There's a king that ends up dri- being driven mad and, uh, and uh, eating, eating grass, and another king for whom the writing is on the wall. I mean, it's just dreams everywhere which map out a future for the people of God. It's an astounding book, and we're going to spend eight or so, eight or nine weeks in this book, which leads us up to the season of Advent, and I'm hoping that it's valuable for you. You see that last line of uh, Daniel chapter 1? Uh, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. He outlived Babylon. He, he won in the end, and I'm going to ask the question how you and I can be victorious in such ways. Is that fair? You with me? That um, on page, I think it's... Um, in fact, I don't have a copy. Can I grab a copy? Is that all right? You have to listen, Will. <laughs> on page um, 10, you can walk across, don't be shy. On page 10, uh, you'll see an outline of the series plus a sort of a schema of the book of Daniel in a strange form. I'll address that next week. But it, it itself is amazing. You'll see that next week. All right, you ready? Let's pray. Father, we really do live in a complex world as Daniel did, and yet it's your world. You made it, you sustain it, you rule over it. Teach us then how to live well in each complex moment for Christ's sake. Amen. So the Jewish exiles uh, lived in the 6th century before Christ. They lived in a complex world like you do, (laughs) Uh, perhaps more complex. They were far from home, far from safety, far from the uh, good and pleasing will of God. They faced pressure like you do. They lived feeling like outsiders when they went to work or in their neighbourhoods. Everything they stood for was opposed by everyone around them. In fact, we know that they wept by the rivers of Babylon. We know that from Psalm 137, not from Boney M. They wept because they were there for their sin. They were there because they'd done the wrong thing. I'll come back to that but they certainly felt like strangers in a foreign land. I love what they said in Psalm 137. We hung up our harps on the poplars, and we couldn't sing. They tormented us and said, sing us songs from Zion. Make us feel happier. And they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in this strange land? It's a great question. How do you keep your joy? We live in our own Babylon too. Uh, Not that we're being thrown into lion's dens or fires. Uh, You know, I love uh, Western democracy. It's not the same as the despots and dictators uh, that they lived in then, although people do live in those sorts of parts of the world uh, now. And we're going to get people from Open Doors during the series to talk about the persecuted Christians. And we're not here in Sydney because of the judgment of God. And we're not forced to be here. Some of you might feel like we are, but we're not forced to be here. We're not slaves. But we're not ultimately home either. And we live in an era where faith isn't supported or upheld necessarily by the people around you, by your work colleagues, your neighbours, by the culture. It's often said that um, we live in a post-Christian nation. You know, if you were a Christian 50 years ago, it feels different now. Your faith feels unaligned with those around you. Uh, There's a sense in which your faith feels foreign 
People have often said to me, it's fine for you to believe what you believe in church, but not out here, not in the public square. It was once said to me that more Sydney siders will come into contact with a zookeeper than they will a Christian minister. So how, I'm not sure if that's true, I was told that. Maybe more people go to the zoo than church. So how do you live well in Babylon then, and, or in Sydney? How do you sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land? Well, enter Daniel, man in the book. Today we begin a series thinking about uh, our Mondays on Sunday. Daniel was set in the 6th century BC. Many of the commentators say rightly that the book is about God, not about Daniel. Tremper Longman said that the main message of the book is, despite appearances, God is in control. He's still in control. But that knowledge must affect behaviour. And so you'll discover how Daniel and his friends, Daniel, a faithful Jew, lives in Iraq, ancient Iraq. And it's basically where he is in Mesopotamia. Daniel's not in church, feeling safe. Not that people always feel safe in church. Daniel has his feet planted firmly in the world, just like Jesus said, in the world, but not of the world, and Daniel's a perfect example of of such behaviour. Right there in the courts, in the government. And you'll discover, I think, in the book, that Daniel wasn't really a hero, not in our sense of the word hero. It's not that he was the first one over the parapet, you know, got himself bloody killing half the enemy, you know, found the treasure, got the girl, ruled the kingdom, and lived happily ever after. That's not Daniel. He really, if you just look closely, he just said no at the right time when the pressure was applied. Next week, we're going to find out he spoke truth to power, and truth be told, he spoke truth to power when asked, and he did so respectfully. Still not easy. His friends, the next week, refused to bow down to the gods of their age. And in chapter 6, Daniel... Um, kept praying the day after it became dangerous to do so. In other words, he did the next day what he did the day before. He just kept doing the thing that he was doing. In other words, he just remained standing, which really is what it means to be victorious in the book of Daniel. It's just to not be knocked off your feet at the end of it all. You know, to sort of die with your face, to remain Christian over a lifetime despite the pressure to give it up. So in this series, you're going to find out what Daniel knew that we struggle with. And you'll find out how to sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land. But the first thing to learn uh, doing Mondays in Babylon is don't be fooled by size. Babylon was big and powerful. Now we'll come to that picture that's there on page 9 of your zines. Uh, in a few moments' time. Today, an introduction to the book and an idea to take away. To introduce the book, some of you, by the way, this is brand new stuff. Many of you, you've spent a bit of time in Daniel, but I'm hoping we get beyond and get into the new things, go a little deeper. To introduce the book and the man, let me ask six questions. Where are we? Verses 1 and 2. How do we get here? Who are we? What's it like to be here? How do we live here, from verses 8 to 20, and what is the future here, in verse 21? Firstly, where are we? Well, we're in Babylon, um, 
ancient Mesopotamia, what is now currently Iraq. Well, we aren't. We're in Sydney. We're not literally in Babylon, but Daniel was literally in Babylon. He was dragged there by a godless, bloodthirsty king called Nebuchadnezzar who was real in history, and you can read his threats uh, if you go to the British Museum in London. In fact, you don't need to go to the British Museum. You can read them in the Bible. So in chapter 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, the year is 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, travelled from Babylon to Jerusalem, I think from the north, and besieged it, surrounded the city. So Jerusalem had the first of, well, at least three decent run-ins with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, This was a nibble. It would end with a temple destroyed some 18 years later. But he drags these uh, people uh, to Babylon. They're, They're in a strange land. And the first thing you need to do is assimilate the Jews. You want to knock out their theology, weaken the practice, and get them to think in Babylonian ways. That's the way you conquer. If you don't do that, they end up rising up against you. And in verse 6, they're named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All of those names have, at their ending, a, a Jewish tone to them. In fact, the names of their gods. No, sorry, excuse me, the names of the God are at the end of their names. Now, I want to argue that this mode, this model of being a stranger in a foreign land is picked up in the New Testament of us, that we are aliens in exile, that we're not our true home, not yet. And so we find ourselves agreeing that God's will is not done on earth as it currently is in heaven. So we pray that that will be the case. We pray your kingdom come. We're thirsting for the kingdom of God and feeling pressure from those around us. So you know that from the New Testament, because the Apostle Peter wrote at the end of his book, he wrote, she who is in Babylon sends her greetings. But Babylon was already destroyed. Peter's talking about Christians in Rome. See that? It's a mode. Babylon's an understanding. I mean, it's in ruins by the time of Jesus. It's in ruins today, by the way. I googled it. You can visit there online. You can visit there in real life. You know, it's just a pile of rubble. These amazing hanging gardens of Babylon, etc. John will pick up a lot of the ideas in the book of Daniel when he wrote the Revelation, when he received the Revelation. And in chapter 18, he writes, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. But it's all dead by 100 AD. It becomes figurative for all the powers opposed to God. So in other words, there's a very real sense in which you can say you live in Babylon if you're not being thrown into lions. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 tells you how to live your Mondays in Babylon when it says, and all these things are true in Daniel, live such lives, Daniel, among the pagans, that's Daniel, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, wait till you see the politics in chapter 6, they may see your good deeds, that happens all the time, even by kings, and glorify God on the day he visits us. You're going to see kings who bow before God. Firstly, where are we? We're in Babylon. Secondly, how do we get here? And the answer is the Lord brought us here, verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. This is sacrilegious. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, put in the treasure house of his God. This would come up in chapter 5 with Belshazzar. 
But notice that God handed Judah over to this bloodthirsty king, which is a surprise. We'll find out the exile was the promised punishment for sin, promised all the way back in Deuteronomy. God said, if you forget me, I'll remove you from the promised land and bring you into a, a strange land. The Jewish people prior to this had had a sense of spiritual entitlement. They were fine. They were good. They had the words of God. They could wave their Bibles. They had the Torah. They had the temple in Jerusalem, which looked so secure. You know, they didn't deny their sin, but they thought their sin smelled like roses. Unlike other people who they could say didn't smell like roses, their sin was bad and my sin was okay. So they did what they wanted and they did what they wanted and God dealt with them. And it's worth just saying that one of the things that the exile teaches us is that sin has to be dealt with. Can't be swept under the carpet. My sin has to be dealt with. It can't be swept under the carpet. And Jesus' death is proof of that. In fact, you could say that Judah was required to be in Babylon 70 years as punishment, just as Jesus was required to be in the tomb for me, for my sin, for three days. And that's why Daniel and his friends and the, uh, the exiles will be told, don't fight it. Um, don't assimilate either. Maintain your faith, but don't fight it. Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in, in Jeremiah 29, a famous letter, and he wrote this, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the sovereign, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all that I carried <laughs> into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. Get this. Build houses. Settle down there. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry. And have sons and daughters. You know, it sounds like he's saying, you know, build the middle class dream. That's not the reason he's saying that. He's not saying, you know, just get comfortable. He's saying the reason why you should do all that is because you ain't coming home anytime soon. Later in the letter, he says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and I'll fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place to stop the exile. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. You see, it's not just a poster to be sold at Kurong to make you feel better. It's got a historical context. God is telling them, you'll get your resurrection, but only after death. <laughs> you'll get your resurrection, but only after 70 years in exile. Now, you and I, uh, we're not in Sydney because of our sin. We may or may not be here 70 years, but we're not at home either, and so there are lessons to be learned. Where are we? We're in Babylon. How did we get here? The Lord brought us. Thirdly, who are we? This is an identity question, and it's important because it governs behavior. You know, you read the language and the debates today, and you'd not be, you'd be forgiven for saying that our identity is almost, almost entirely governed by sexual desire. In terms of identity, it's sort of the language that we're talking about at the moment. Or maybe it's something to do with being Australian or, or something like that. Well, for Daniel, they said, who are we? We are the people of God, inheritors of the promise to Abraham, rehearsing the story of rescue through the Passover and believing the promises of God. Who am I? I am God's beloved, even in exile. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a Jew. I am Gentile dog. But God had a plan for this whole world, namely that in one Jew, in the life of Jesus, in his death and resurrection, in Christ, all will be made alive, even including non-Jews like me. Who am I? I'm loved in Christ, saved by his precious blood, redeemed, not worthy, but worth it. There's a difference. So my primary identity is not as a sexual being, and it's not as a Sydney-sider. Rather, it is in Christ. And if in Christ, how then shall we live? Now, there's one point of contact with Daniel and his friends. Here's another point of contact that we have, I think, with Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends were chosen in many ways to join this assimilation university because they were the cream of the crop. It nominates what they're like in verse 4. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, so they're attractive, they're showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They're well-informed, quick to understand, mentally agile, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, I've said this before, and I get busted every time I say it, but um, it's worth just telling the truth about the five congregations of the parish of Churchill. So many, so many talented people not just with education, but experience. I'm happy to say many, many handsome women and men. So many attractive people here, really. I'm happy to say that this paragraph is true of, of the congregations in general, that people here are, are, are so aptitude for every kind of learning. You are well informed. I come to you, to, I come to all the time. Tell me how this works. Because you know how it works. Quick to understand. I often sit down after a sermon and think, uh, gee, I hope I got away with that. I'm pretty sure I didn't, you know. And qualified to serve. We have hundreds of university degrees in the five congregations of the parish. Dozens of PhDs, dozens of them. People here are intelligent, they are thoughtful, and they are mentally agile, and many of you are not just not qualified. You are serving in government, education, art, business, medicine, media. This Sunday crowd is amazing on Monday. And we're going to sing a song in a moment about not boasting about anything. You are Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So there's application for, for us. I think it would be unwise not to believe this is so. Fourth, what's it like here in Babylon? Uh, verses 5 to 7. Well, there's pressure to conform, to give up your distinctive beliefs about God, to go soft on the edges of uh, Christian doctrine. I think about the value of human life. Everyone loves us talking about the value of human life, but we've got it grounded on the fact that we're made in God's image, that people don't... You know, they want to have some. There's pressure on the uniqueness of Christ, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection as the only way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's Jesus who said that. The resurrection uh, is pressure on that. It's meaningless at best. What, you know, Jesus came out of the tomb like 
Even if that happened, so what, you know? Um, or it's a hoax at worst, embarrassing perhaps, uh, to say you believe in. It is remarkable with the hundreds of university degrees and dozens of PhDs that there are people in this room that say, oh yes, the resurrection. You know, the only hope I have, really. <laughs> but here we are, there's pressure to conform on human sexuality, on greed as a mode of living, and on what is and is not on the right side of human history. You can hear that all the time. You're on the wrong side of human history and you're like, you're supposed to say, well, really, where's the number to get in line? That's how it works, the pressure. Well, that's what's happening in verses 4 uh, to, to 7. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar puts them in university to teach them the language, the literature of the Babylonians. So there's education, there's wining and dining. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Got that? They were to be trained for three years. That's like an arts degree. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. And then they had this name change where they're, they're given names with Babylonians' gods in them. And that's, you're really striking at someone's identity if you think you can just change their name. They were sent off to the academy to become Babylonians. Uh, the way some of you and I feel we're sort of sent into Sydney in order to be secularists, uh, to sort of walk away. Now notice here, by the way, in chapter 1, it's all very gentle. It's going to get very ferocious soon. Here it's gentle, sort of above board, come in. Uh, it's all very flattering, but all designed to chip away at their faith, to get with the program, to join the masses, to end up on the right side of history. But here it is, the first thing uh, to say about Mondays in Babylon is don't be fooled by size. That picture you have there on page 9, you recognise it? The NV Pashabolka, 77,000 tonnes of Japanese cargo ship. In 2007, I was living in New York at the time. Uh, she was sitting just off the coast of Newcastle. A storm hit, uh, there were some warnings, despite fighting the currents, this huge, gigantic ship ran aground on Stockton Beach, just north of Newcastle. Uh, I used to live in Newcastle and, uh, you know, I asked friends, you know, take photographs from Nobby's head. And, you know, the one question they had is, how on earth does something so big, I mean, if you were paddling along and you are you know, what do you call it? What is this thing called? Can, what is it called? Kayak. Um, and the Pasha Bolka came, came by. Um, you know, you get out of its way. It's huge, bearing down on you. So what could cause something so huge uh, to be solidly beached? You know what the answer is? You know what the answer is? The ocean is bigger than the boat. The ocean is more powerful than the ship, much bigger. And you don't notice it, by the way, because a little bit like God, God is the ocean, the Pasha Bolka is the Babylonian Empire, any powers opposed to God. You tend to just live with the ocean and just assume it's there. In fact, you take your two-year-old and you lap their feet in the ocean because, you know, it just sits there. But when the ocean is moved in a storm, then that which seems so large suddenly becomes a floating chess piece. Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon, Medes, Persians, Greeks, Romans, 
floating chess pieces in the plans and purposes of God. I think I'm mixing my metaphors there. The writer picked that up. Babylon is like the Pashabolka, every empire it is, and the ocean is like God. She seems so large, Babylon, so overwhelming, so terrifying. And so there's like, I want to yield, like I'm on a kayak on my small boat. So Babylon becomes the one to whom I owe my allegiance, her story, my story, her life, my life, her demands become my choices. Same thing happened in the New Testament with the Roman Empire. But the consistent message of the whole Bible is this, don't be fooled by size. The weight of this city, the pressure that's on you, cannot and ought not to be the determining factor in who you are or what you do. Amen? Jesus wasn't fooled by the ancient Roman, uh, ancient Rome, stood before Pilate, about to go into his own exile, into a tomb for my sin, not for his own. And he followed God in that moment by picking up a cross. He did not fear Caesar by picking up a sword. And his followers did and still do the same. It's called, uh, it's called the way, it's following in the way. So how do you live here, verses 8 to 20? That's what this whole series is about. But in this talk, I want to leave you with just one idea, and it's this. To make a choice, think about it over a number of days or weeks, to make a deliberate resolution, really, to do something in your neighbourhood or in your workplace, where if you say you belong to Christ, and not everybody does, but if you say you belong to Jesus Christ, work out a way of communicating to your work colleagues, for example, that you belong to God. You know, they're not just part of the system. (laughs) Think creatively. I think Daniel thought creatively. He drew a line in the sand, we'll come to that in a moment, and he didn't cross it. And others knew In doing this, of course, he's teaching himself something and he's saying something to those around him. Do something to let others know that you aren't sort of drinking the secular Kool-Aid. That's what Daniel does in verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Uh, God caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. God was in the mess. But they resolved not to eat the choice food, the food from the king's table, or to drink his wine. You notice in that exchange, he's respectful. Uh, He devised a way to test the situation, to minimise the risk for another. There's a guy saying, I could have my head if you're found uh, weak. And he says, you know what, I don't want you to bear that that, uh, that risk, test us for 10 days and, you know, you decide then what you think. Daniel chose not to eat the king's lavish food. He knew that there's no such thing as a free lunch. I wonder how Scott Morrison feels right now. You know, seriously. Verse 14, uh, he agreed to this, tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier, better nourished than anybody else so the guard took away choice, the choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Only for a season, vegetables instead. Now what's going on here? Some people make a case for vegetarianism, but it's only for a season. This is 
You can make a case for vegetarianism, you're not going to make it from here. Some people make a case for temperance, they refuse the alcohol. But again, this lady is going to come back to it and fast for a season. So I don't think you're going to be able to make the case for either of those two things, even though lots of people have. You can make a case, not from this text. So I think, what's he doing? Well, I think there's at least three options, and two are related to him being Jewish, but I'm not Jewish, you see. The first one, he's a Jew, and he's worried the food's not kosher, which it most certainly wasn't. (laughs) Uh, Although, interestingly, I don't believe wine would be the problem here. It's interesting. Second one, he's he's a Jew, and he's wondering if the food has been offered to idols, which most likely it was, a pagan, ancient pagan culture. Although, fascinatingly, the text is silent on the matter. The third one's really interesting, namely that he knows he's being wined and dined. He knows the food is from the king's table. There's an emphasis on the word choice food and wine. He knows he's being bought. And so he creatively drew a line in the sand. He wanted to say to himself and to others, I won't be bought. I do not belong to you. My strength doesn't come from my capitulation to authority. Now, maybe all three are true, and I'll leave that to the scholars to argue. But it's worth noting the outcome that to these four men, verse 17, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, which come in handy next chapter. None of that came from because of his learning. It wasn't because he went to university. I'm not disparaging university, but that's not how he was 10 times better than the magicians and the enchanters of the whole kingdom. When the king questioned them in verse 20, uh, you know, just astounding what they were. It wasn't granted to them by the academy. It came from their decision to honor God in Babylon. Now, what about us? I want to say to you, well, you know, we're not, you're not Jewish. Jesus freed you to eat whatever you like. Take that tasty ham and cheeseburger and chow it down, Mark 7, and you can eat food off to idols because Paul said it all belongs to God anyway. Don't be careful as how, how you love people. But I do want to say, we need to find creative ways to say, you're Christian, you belong to him. Not the virtue signal, but to keep communicating that you belong to God. Despite the pressure from Babylon, you want to remain standing. And maybe it's telling someone at work this week that you went to church, not being afraid to do so, or to turn up to a Bible study that's at work if there is one. And... Um, You know, it's obvious you're not there in the the lunch space. Or perhaps you can pin something to a corkboard above your workstation. You have to think about what that might be, but, um, you know, someone will raise their eyebrows when it takes place. It's both easier and harder to say no to various things in the workplace, no to the corruption. Sometimes it's easier because it's clear, sometimes it's harder because of the pressure. Maybe, for example... You perceive that a function is going to become alcohol-fueled, and so you leave at an appropriate time. But you're there, at least at the beginning. You're away overseas with work colleagues, and they want to visit some establishment. You know it's wrong. You're not going. Now, there's pressure. I mean, everybody who ends up in those circumstances just sort of seems to be guided in. But, you know, you're going to say no to that, you know. WWDD, what would Daniel do? You know, we're going to come to Jesus in a little while, but you know, I'll give you another example that combines righteousness and and wisdom as well. Here's another thought. In our society at the moment, it's just um, always going to be the case that you'll cohabitate 
with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you get married. You'll commit, in other words, with your body before you'll commit with your words in covenant uh, before a group of people that can hold you accountable for the words you say. When I was at university, there wasn't as much of it. Now it's basically, you're strange if you don't. Now you know this is true. And you know it's also true because of, well, rent pressure. You think, why pay to rents? Is what people say. But to actually decide to not cohabitate uh, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but rather to get married. And by the way, it takes one month and 60 bucks to get married, and I'll pay it for you. That's how much the, the, uh, the registration is, if... Uh, if that's going to happen here, by the way, there's a couple here. There's something from the Spirit when I was meeting them, and I said, you guys are living together? I had no reason to say it. And they said, yeah, rent. And I said, come on. Sort of made a joke and said, I've got a good mind to marry you tonight. I mean, they'd already filled the notice of intent to marry, which is the government form. And uh, we got talking. There, was no, there wasn't judgment. There was just grace, and we outlined some thoughts about what was going on. She said, I've got to go to the gym. And he said, uh, no, honey, you're not going to the gym. Justin called it. He's right. We are followers of Jesus. We're doing the wrong thing. Can we open up that question about being married tonight? I called the bishop. I okayed it with staff. They met me at 9 o'clock right here in this space to be married, to make a covenant with each other in front of family and friends. I mean, really, if you're not cohabitating, people will say to you, is that for religious reasons? I mean, you know what I'm saying? You're communicating as you do it. Come to church each week in community group, not just because your presence counts, but also what it communicates to your friends. Because it all rests finally on what the future is here. Babylon destroyed, uh, and the new Jerusalem uh, is ahead of us at his appearing. Daniel was a teenager when he was carted to Babylon, Oliver's age. Uh, and he was in his 70s. Because uh, Verse 21, he remained there to the first year of King Cyrus. In other words, he outwitted Nebuchadnezzar, he outlasted uh, Belshazzar, he outplayed them all. It's the ultimate survivor. Nebuchadnezzar voted off the island first. Nebuchadnezzar may look big like the Pasha Balka, but he is adrift on the power and the sovereignty of God. Daniel creatively drew a line in the sand and he was sowing it into his future self. We are always sowing into our future selves. What is our future? New Jerusalem. Jesus has dealt with my sin. He went into his own exile to bring me home. His resurrection changes everything. He's King of kings and Lord of lords, and that means Nebuchadnezzar is not. Therefore, uh, do Mondays in Babylon differently. Suffer well, choose life, do what is right, follow God, and draw lines in the sand and don't cross them. Shall we pray? Father, the Apostle Paul lived in the real world where he was ridiculed and he suffered and he wanted to choose what was right uh, and he said that because of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are victorious just for remaining standing, but for not giving in to the pressure. And we do this because we're convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor Nebuchadnezzar nor Belshazzar, neither the present nor the future, nor powers nor pressures nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I wanted to pray two prayers that are uh, to conclude our time together before we sing on page 11. Pray the prayer for rain and then a prayer for our environment. Both have been approved by the Archbishop of Sydney and in fact he's asked us to pray these prayers. So 
So let me pray in verse, verse 11. I'll pray Psalm at the end. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge our ingratitude when we have taken your goodness for granted. When the heaven has poured forth rain and the earth has produced its fruit. Yet now we cry to you for help as the drought in New South Wales deepens. Have mercy on our land. Have mercy on the people of our land. May your bountiful hand send forth rain on our parched earth. Fulfill your promises that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest shall not cease, so that those in remote and rural areas of Australia may find relief from their distress and glorify your name for the provision of their needs. We ask this in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Not printed, but here's a prayer for the environment. Seems appropriate. Heavenly Father, thank you for filling the world with beauty and bounty in the cities and the countries, on the coast and inland. You blessed the first humans and commanded them to fill the earth and subdue it. You supply seed for the sower and bread for the eater. But we and our ancestors have mistreated and damaged the environment. Even our best efforts have been tarnished with ignorance and self-interest. Please continue to bless us with a fruitful world. Sustain us with the resources we need for life. Guide the politicians, the nations, and large corporations to seek cooperative and responsible ways of caring for the environment. Give individuals, give to us the willingness to play our part in being wise stewards of what you give us. May we look to you as creator and sustainer of our world and give you the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.